I don't know if any of you have been around somebody who really has a kind of a, a hobby horse of a subject. You know what a hobby horse is? Well, a hobby horse was, used to be uh, a, a little game that kids would play. They'd get a stick, and they'd create some kind of a horse head on the end of the stick, and they'd run around pretending the uh, stick and the horse head was a real horse, and they'd play that game in that decade for hours upon hours. It was so much fun for them. But then uh, us adults got on the bandwagon. We wrecked that, and now a hobby horse is something that we just can't let go we talk about, we go back to all the time, and I got to say this morning, as we've read 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 11, our dear brother John has a hobby horse. But you know what? This is a good one. John has a hobby horse around the subject of love. And I, you, you might at first want to say, John, John, or maybe you're being honoring, Apostle John. Please, enough with the love stuff. But really, it's a great hobby horse. Uh, he talked about it in 1 John uh, 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 chapter 2, and then 1 John chapter 3, and now here we are in 1 John chapter 4, and he's talking about it. And if we could sum up powerfully what he is trying to communicate to us, it would be that love is to be the extraordinary and distinguishing mark of the church in the world. Love is to be the extraordinary and distinguishing mark of the church in the world. And listen how he punctuates it in verse 8 of 1 John 4. He says, anyone who does not love does not know God. Exclamation mark, really. That's a, that's a huge punctuation. I mean, that probably picked some ears up. Maybe even this morning, you went, what? Really? Anyone who does not love does not know God? So, dear brothers and sisters, this morning, um, in Christ, I want to share with you, uh, honestly and fully, that it's the time to examine our hearts. Not just yours. I'm doing it too. The, the heart has uh, a place that is uh, designed for it to be loving. Anyone who does not love does not know God. It has become, actually, in this statement, John's supreme standard, isn't it? It's like, this is the bar to tell you, to tell us whether or not you know God. And so John makes a couple preliminary statements. He says, first of all, love is the inevitable result of being born of God. Do you catch that word, inevitable? If we're born of God, we will be people who love. What he's saying and what he's seeing should be rooted deeply in our souls is uh, that when the life of God is imparted to a new child of God, that new birth manifests itself in love for others. That's as basic as we can get it. When we're born again, we get this love that comes directly from God and it's manifest. In other words, he's saying that the characteristic of our heavenly father becomes the characteristic of us as his children. We will mirror his very nature. We will, uh, simply speaking, be people who uh, will experience the love of God and then display the love of God in our lives. Verse 11 in this section, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Nevertheless, 
love, uh, although uh, it is called upon, it's not automatic. I, I think you all understand that because if you're like me, you feel that you've probably not been loving enough in too many situations. Maybe in your home, maybe where you work, maybe somewhere in your family dynamic. It is not automatic, but it also is not effortless. It does take work to be a loving Christian. So growing in love with God and others takes mindful effort. It, it's an openness to the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, to work in our lives. So first of all, love is the inevitable result of being born again. Secondly, uh, just another opening thing I wanted to mention about this is God's love will not contradict truth. God's love will not contradict truth. Look at verse 1 of 1 John 4. This is what we looked at last week. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. We remember that uh, 1 John is teaching against those false prophets who are drawing people away from the true church of Christ with supposed secret truths. And here he's telling us in this section of this epistle with really, maybe it sounds in this verse one harsh. You know, you're being straightforward and harsh. How can you be loving in that? But he's, he's saying the truth in love. He says, if you deny the essential truth about Jesus Christ, you're a false prophet whose teaching is the spirit of Antichrist. What John is saying here is that he's not saying to lay aside, uh, because of love, the truth of the gospel for the sake of unity. Truth is still truth. Love is love. And the one doesn't cancel out the other. Uh, Pastor Jonathan mentioned Jesus in uh, talking to his disciples in John chapter 17. That chapter is known as the chapter of the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And he prayed his disciples would be one. That's the first thing you note of his, his prayer. But that they would know the, that the Father sent him. So that the disciples be one, but that the world would know that the Father sent them. And yes, John was in the room. He, he heard that prayer with his own ears. Yet he says in the same high priestly prayer, uh, he says in verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So love brings unity, but love does not cancel out the truth of God. There are those in our church family uh, the, the global church, uh, who have different positions and directions of doctrine. And I'm just going to run through three thoughts on this uh, about how we handle these. One is some doctrines, some of these doctrines are important for how we live the Christian life. And so we may vigorously debate them among ourselves. But how do we debate? How do we talk about things we might not agree about in love? Secondly, some issues fall into gray zones where salvation's not at stake, but to embrace a particular view will have momentous 
results or consequences in how you live out your life in Christ, how you live out your church uh, in Christ. And again, how do we deal with those differences? In love. Lastly, there are other doctrines where believing or rejecting them make the difference between heaven and hell. And those we cannot compromise. There we may have to say fellowship is not possible and we separate. And that's happened throughout the decades. But how do we, how do we stand in our own lane? How do we go down our own lane and deal with those who choose another path? We do it in love. With grace and love. For example, in this path, we, we would never, ever... Um, decry the necessity of the substitutionary atonement of Christ. That's absolutely essential. That's the gospel. And if you want to choose another path, then we wish you wouldn't. We would pray that you wouldn't. Yet, in love, we, we say, we will walk our path. How about this? That salvation is by grace alone through faith. Isn't that an absolute truth that we must follow? Works don't cut it. God doesn't need our works because we're sinners. And there is no work that can cover up our sin or pay the price. Only what Jesus did on the cross. How about the Trinitarian nature of God? That God is three persons, yet each of those persons is separate. It blows your mind. We don't really get it ever. One day, Maybe we will when we're face-to-face with the Lord. How about the deity of Christ? That's an absolute. We, that we must stay in this lane and this narrow path and his perfect humanity. Should we lay aside such critical and primary truths of the gospel? Uh, it would not be an act of God's love, especially if we did this for the sake of unity. Jesus never called us to be unified at all costs. But he did call us to love at all costs. wouldn't be loving for me to see, uh, say, John over here. I always pick on you, John, don't I? <laughs> You're always in my right-hand view. John's walking uh, on this path, and at the end of the path, not too far away, is a cliff. The cliff is hundreds and hundreds of feet uh, to, the, to the bottom. And should John walk off that cliff, he will die. It would not be loving for me not to say something. John, there's danger ahead. John, there are things that are going to happen to you if you don't stop and turn around. Turn around. Turn around. And in love, I would be shouting at him, don't do it. And that's what we do in this world We proclaim Christ. We declare that he is the answer to sin because sin leads everyone to one day that cliff where we say, not there, not there. Over here, there is a bridge called Jesus Christ and the cross. Walk across that by faith and be saved. Then we think through this, how, did all, how do we get to chapter 4? I want to just now shift gears into our section. I, I think what's happened here, we, last week we heard uh, about 
believing in the name of the Son, uh, in Jesus. Uh, look at verse chapter 3, verse 23, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ. And then, and then it says, and love one another, just as he commanded us. So last week we looked at the fact, what's most important? Believing in Christ. And now John continues that, verse 7, and he says, we're going to talk about love and loving others. Loving one another, loving others. So here, let's look at the second part. Let's read verse 7 and 8 again. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. The demonstration of love in our hearts and for God and for others is a key indicator that you have come to know God. That knowledge of God is not head knowledge. It is a deep core understanding of who God is and who we are before this amazing God. And so in the next few minutes, let's see how John unpacks the answer to the question, why should we love others? Why should we love others? And again, uh, I love uh, how John starts this section and, and in verse 11 as well, um, he talks about the beloved. John is a man who uh, really uh, loves people. Verse 11. Where does it say there? Come on. Oh, it's never going to say it in First Peter. <laughs> I was reading First Peter. People, would you tell me when I'm reading the wrong scriptures? There you go. I'm looking at it going, what have I done here? So John, 1 John 4, uh, verse 1, beloved. Here's this pastoral verse. And then verse 7, beloved. And then verse 11, beloved. You know this man cares for these people. You know that they're the top of heart, the top of mind uh, for him. He loves them. And, you know, it's not an insincere thing. This is from the heart. It's not like today uh, where people can sometimes, it just feels insincere, even if they say, I, I love you. Uh, people haven't really defined love very well in our day and age. Uh, we say, we love this food or that food. Uh, what we really mean is we really, really like that food, you know. Um, they may say, we love the Blue Jays. By the way, we, we won yesterday. If you didn't come to the Blue Jays game yesterday, you missed the party with 35,000 others and the bridge. And we were on the screen. I tell you, we felt very, pretty good with ourselves. We love our cars and our things that we have. What we're saying is we really, really enjoy them. We often think of love as an emotional or sentimental thing, don't we? And it can get really kind of sappy. And it's all right, love things. But we need a working, solid, biblical definition of love. And I've culled this together. And I hope you can work with this, write it down, remember it. Here it is. Biblical love is a self-sacrificing, caring commitment that shows itself in seeking the highest good of the one loved. Take a moment, just read that again. 
And, and notice in there, first of all, in the definition that I'm offering you, is it's biblical love is self is sacrificial. And we know scriptures, like here in verse 9, God sent his only son into the world. And remember, when God sent his son, it was not like he was seeking something from us. Because he's got everything. There is nothing we can give God that he doesn't already have. So he sent his son into the world, Jesus. And of course, we know uh, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. God gave everything, everything, by sending Jesus. Not only that, biblical love, secondly, implies action. Biblical love says, I'm going to do something. And, and in 1 John 3.18, we read it, little children, let us not love the world or, in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. In deed and in truth. So, with action. And the action has to be based on truth, the word of God. We love in deed and truth. And then thirdly, the most neglected part, I think, of most definitions of biblical love is biblical love demands obedience. Are we obedient to God? 1 John 5, 3, he touches on the subject again. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. We keep his commandments. John, this is his heartbeat. Back in his gospel in John 14, verse 21, he says, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. I could just stop right there and, and ask you, just think about your life. He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. If we really, truly love as followers of Jesus, as children of the Father, we'll keep his commandments, we'll obey his word to our very best ability. So, in essence, biblical love is a significant commitment be sacrificial, to be active, and to be obedient. Biblical love does involve delight, but also duty. It involves not just an attitude, but an action. Yes, it requires self-sacrifice. That's supremely seen in Jesus, our Savior, going to the cross. What better example? But the goal of this commitment is the highest good of the one love. We can't forget that last portion of the definition. We're looking out for the highest good of the one loved, which is that the person that we're loving would come to know Jesus Christ by faith and be saved. Why should we love others? Well, let's look at a number of things that John offers Powerful statements regarding why we should love one another. First of all, we should love others because God is the source of genuine love. Because it comes from his very nature. Love is from God. In verse 7, then deeper again, he says, God is love. 
all-encompassing. God is all-encompassing what real, true love is. And that's true that there are those who are not following Jesus who show, show love. And many of us will know people who are very loving but have not given their heart to Christ. And that's what we call common grace. Uh, God bestowed his grace on this world. And we see that common grace when somebody without Christ shows love to another individual. For example, an unbelieving individual will sacrificially love their children, their family, maybe some friends, co-workers, by doing an act of love. Uh, Unbelieving soldiers may lay down their life for their comrades as an act of love. Common grace. But while this kind of love is self-sacrifice and caring, it can never be truly genuine biblical love because unbelievers cannot seek the highest good of the one loved. They don't know Jesus. They have no clue that others should know Jesus. And they aren't seeking that for others when they show signs and acts of love. Let's remember the definition we're working with. Biblical love is self-sacrificing, caring commitment that shows itself in seeking the highest good of the loved of the one loved. And so I say even us, us as family with our children and our grandchildren, our friends and family, if we're not praying for those in our family, our friends and others, that they might come to know Christ, we are not truly, fully exhibiting and acting on biblical love. We may be loving them, but we're missing that critical point, uh, portion of what love is. And so John is saying, whenever we see biblical love, we know that it comes from God. Love is from God. And God is love. Everybody loves that statement, don't they? You've probably heard it many, many times. God is love. But they misconstrue it in some ways because they say that in light of the thought that God is love and he will not send anybody into hell or judge them for not trusting him. He could never condemn anyone because God is love. That's what that statement often means to the world. But the scripture is clear. God's love does not cancel out his holiness. Did you catch that? Let me, let me repeat that. God's love does not cancel out his holiness. For example, in 1 John 1, 5, John tells us God is light and in him is no darkness at all. God doesn't exist where there is darkness. He is light and doesn't exist with darkness. So therefore, the day that's coming when um, uh, Jesus returns and heaven opens up, those who are still sinners cannot be with God in his presence. Another scripture uh, Tells us in 1 John 2.29, he is righteous. God is righteous. His righteousness means that he must punish sin. And even more, John wrote that marvelous final book in our scriptures called Revelation. 
And in Revelation 20.15 it says, And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Clearly giving us this image of judgment and penalty for saying no to God. For saying no to the love of God. God is just and right. God is love. God is holy. And he is the righteous judge. So first of all, God's the very source of genuine love. Because it comes from his very nature. Secondly, John's unfolding this some more in verse 7 and 8. We should love others because God's true children display his nature. He states this both positively and negatively in verse 7 and 8. Whoever has been born of God knows God, and negatively anyone who does not love God or does not love does not know God. Remember, he's also teaching here against false teachers who claim to know some secret that the other, others didn't. Uh, and John is saying they don't even know God at all. They're not, they're not truly born again because with uh, they, without Christ, they, they could not practice biblical love. Children take on the characteristics of their fathers. And if you have uh, children, I think you know that as an assurity. Um, my son's in the building today, and he took on the characteristic that I have of being a handsome man. No, 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 sorry. That wasn't supposed to be my outside voice. That was supposed to stay in here. He takes on the characteristic of loving God because I think he watched his mother and myself grow to love God. And now I watch him and I think, wow, what a joy it is to see him love God and serve God. And both his sisters and their children are being taught by example how to love God. Now, before you think that I'm saying that we are the perfect examples, no, we are far from perfect. But when we do demonstrate the love of God, God somehow shines the greatest light on that at the moment. And his children take on the characteristic. Being truly born again, love will grow. I can tell you from personal experience that when I was a new Christian, I didn't love very well. I had harsh words. I had harsh attitudes. I uh, had very bad attitudes about people who I thought weren't walking the narrow way, you know, because I knew. I was the guy who knew. And now some 40 years later, I realize I knew very little. As a matter of fact, it took all of those 40 years to get me to what I feel like today I'm just starting to understand what the love of God is. I'm just starting to understand what the narrow path of walking with Jesus really means. And I am a, I'm over the moon that we get to do this together. We get to learn how to love God and love others together. Because, you know, folks, there are too many churches, too many Christians that have characteristics of being angry, resentful, judgmental, unkind, impatient, abusive in their speech and actions, really simply unloving. Martin Luther was a wonderful preacher, and uh, 
he died somewhere, I think, in 1960s, and uh, he preached in one church for like 40 years, and, and people just loved him because they saw the love of God in him. And he said this about churches and individuals who just have all these negative things. He said, oh, my heart grieves and bleeds for them. They are pronouncing and proclaiming that they are not born of God. They are outside of the life of God. There is no hope for such people unless they repent and turn to him. Martin Luther, I think, very much understood the teaching that John is bringing to us this morning that we should love because God is a very source of genuine love and we, his children, display his nature if we're truly born again. The third thing is we should love others because God has demonstrated his love by sending his son to be a propitiation for our sins. And I love that big theological word. Some of you right now are going, pro, pro what? Propitiation. Let me read the scripture, verses 9 and 11, 1 John 4. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. I want to say couple things, and then we'll talk about propitiation. First of all, God demonstrated his love. God took upon himself to be active. He loved us, how? By sending his son. His love cost him his son. One of my favorite um, scriptures to read is Ephesians chapter 1, the whole chapter. But let me just give you verse 4 and 5. In love... Uh, Paul says, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. And sometimes we pass over the first two words, in love. God sent Jesus because he loves each and every one. Even if you don't love God right now, if you're not, if you're not a follower of Jesus and you're not even sure about God, he still loves you. Why did he come? To manifest in Christ, through Christ, and by what Christ would do, his great love. He also says God demonstrated his love so that we might live through him. Verse 9, second part. See, Christianity is not primarily a matter of a person deciding to stop certain sinful practices that they know are not doing well. And then begin some morally acceptable practices. Christianity is not a matter of changing from being a non-religious person who spends Sundays golfing or whatever and not coming to church to becoming this regular churchgoer. That's not what Christianity is about. Uh, Christianity at its core is a matter of God imparting new life to those who are dead in their sins and then seeing this new life Reveal itself in loving behavior. That's what Christianity is about. Imparting new life. We heard about it this morning already. We saw it in the baptism of our young brother. That was the symbolic uh, um, image of having new life coming out of the grave to new life 
in Christ. And then thirdly, Paul talks about here, John talks about here, that God demonstrated his love by sending his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Um, uh, sometimes we get focused on ourselves, we get built up, puffed up with pride. But as we read John carefully, slowly, we see that John directs us back to God's love as seen in Jesus and what he did for us. Propitiation simply means to satisfy God's justice and wrath toward our sin. God himself, rightfully so, has wrath and has the right for justice when it comes to sin. His love, God's love for us, just didn't brush aside our sin. Because his holiness and justice wouldn't allow him. Rather, in this great love of God that's more unfathomable than anything else, seeing the desperate state that you and I are in, we're in, God was moved out of love to send his own son who bore the penalty for our sin. Paul succinctly says it so well in Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love, demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And if you've lost the glory and the, and the, the joy and the excitement of that thought in your life, don't forget, remember when you were a sinner, you were lost and Christ took your place to be your propitiation, to satisfy God's need for justice and his right for justice. Let's never forget that. Let's always rejoice in what Jesus has done for us. And lastly, uh, John's conclusion is inescapable. Look at verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So the, in, the, 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 the conclusion that we can't miss is, uh, fourthly, therefore we ought to love one another. With these things that we now know, what are we to do with it? We're to love one ought. Ought is a good word. We, we quickly go over that word sometimes, but it implies, in its original language, it implies obligation. And it implies commandment. God is saying, because I have loved you, my children, I'm commanding you. And it is implied that you would go out and love others. And I'll tell you right now, loving others at times is not easy. Can you, you probably can think of someone right now, you can say, oh, pastor, I'm not too sure about this. You want me to love that one? They're really not that lovable in any way. And I got to be honest, there are a few that I could call to mind that I find it difficult to love. But God never said here or anywhere else that loving others is going to be easy. Remember what Jesus said about our enemies? Matthew 5, 43. You've heard it, that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, oh no, here it comes, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, 
so that you may be the sons of your Father who is in heaven. Wow, Jesus, that's hard. I can love my friends, family, even some kind of some people who are, you know, kind of on the edge. But Jesus is saying. The narrow way, the way that demonstrates that your characteristic comes from your father is to biblically love others. Yes, selfless acts, action acts, but also loving them in a way that leads them to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Don't forget, let's never forget, God loved us at our worst. There, there isn't anything worse than being a sinner. And we don't even need to talk about, is this sin worse than this sin? No, all sin is equal. It is an affront to the holiness and justice of God. He sent Jesus into this world filled with sin to love us. And if you're a child of God, you put your faith and trust in Christ, you must, we must love others. Uh, some of you pick up uh, on a monthly basis uh, our daily bread. Maybe you even get it delivered to your home. We have it here at the back and they go pretty quickly. These are, this is a, a monthly devotional for every day and it has a we story in it. There's a wee story in a daily bread that's gone many years back uh, that came out of the Korean War. There was a young communist officer who was tasked with finding Christians and killing them. And he found this one Christian man who actually was doing really good things for Korean youth uh, who were without families. He, he started uh, an uh, orphanage. But he was tasked to kill Christians. And so what he did, he, he found it, uh, if he doesn't kill this Christian, he would kill his son. And he did that. He took him out and he killed this godly Christian man's son. The war went through and over and afterwards war criminals were found and tried. And this communist man was put on trial for war crimes. This Christian man who had lost his son was at that trial. And when the judge was about to pronounce the death sentence on him, he cried out, pleading to the judge not to kill him, but to give this young man to him, and he would teach him about Christ. He said he was being led idealistically by the wrong people. He was so young, he, he made a terrible choice. And I want to teach him about the better way. I want to teach him about the love of Christ. And he did. The judge let him. And this young man became a Christian, became a lover of God, and became a preacher of the love of God. Here at this church, we have four pillars. First pillar is that we want to help you know God. But it just doesn't stop there. The second pillar is that we want to help you find freedom and then discover your gifts and then go out and make a difference. Well, when you know God, you discover one thing, God loves you deeply, then take that out 
and help others to find freedom because you just found freedom. Freedom from sin. And freedom from whatever is holding you back from a healthy and vital life. And you can make that huge difference. I pray today that you will do that. Don't ever forget what the love of God cost our Heavenly Father. Grow in uh, our demonstration of His character and obedience to His command. And let's let this definition sink deeply into our hearts. Biblical love is self-sacrificing, caring commitment that shows itself in seeking the highest good of the one loved, which is Jesus. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that we've been able to have this time together today to uh, really uh, sort of come together around this major theme of the Apostle John, the Pastor John, this subject of love. May we as a church family shock people in, in our families and amongst our own church family here and this community by the way we so quickly and readily love others through our words, through our actions. And in all of that, may they see the love of Christ, the Father in us. And all of that we want to see happen for your glory. And this we pray in Jesus' name, amen.